Let's open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel tonight. It's our first study in the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament. This will be exciting. You remember when we um, went through verse by verse and chapter by chapter through John's Gospel, we opened up by, I asked John what his name meant, and, um, and he said, God is gracious. And gospel, of course, means what? Somebody tell me, what is gospel? Good news. Gospel means good news. John's name means God is gracious. So the gospel of John was the good news that God is gracious. It's interesting that Matthew... Gospel, again, means good news, but the definition of Matthew's name is gift of God. So this is the good news of the gift of God. And that's just one way to remember Matthew's gospel, the good news of the gift of God. Now, if you look at that handout, it says Matthew quotes some 50 times from the Old Testament and alludes to Old Testament passages at least 70 more times to demonstrate that Jesus truly is the Old Testament Messianic King. Remember when we got into the book of Acts and then into Paul's epistles that the Apostle Paul and whoever happened to be his traveling companion at the time, if it was Paul and Barnabas or Paul and Silas, they would go into the synagogues and they would reason in the synagogues that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah. And that was his whole purpose. Well, just like John's purpose for writing the Gospel of John, remember we found that in the end of his Gospel there in uh, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where it says... um, that Jesus did many other miraculous things in the sight of his, his disciples, but these were recorded that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you'd have life in his name. Well, John gives a couple of verses there at the end of the book as to why he wrote the book. Matthew's intention is just to point to Jesus as the Messiah or the king, and he talks about the kingdom over and over and over. Now, he uses Old Testament scripture so much that it's an indication to us that he's, he's writing for a Jewish audience. Okay, For the most part, those that he's writing to are Jews. Okay, And as you recall, the early church was made up mainly of Jews. Later on, the gospel went out to the Gentiles. And I just want to point out a couple of things. Uh, Matthew didn't write exclusively to the Jews, and the reason I say that is because in the last chapter there we read about the Great Commission. And he talks about taking the good news to every creature. Okay? In uh, Matthew 28, he talks about taking it uh, eight, verses 18 through 20. It's a good commission, the Great Commission. Now, but understand that as he goes into the Old Testament and uses these passages or alludes to these passages, he's trying to point something out. He's, every time he 
paints a portrait of Jesus, he's saying Messiah. Jesus, Yeshua, Messiah. Okay? Now consider these passages concerning Jesus' birth. Now I've got them written down here for time's sake, though we're not going to turn to all of them. Um, but I wrote these down for a specific purpose that you could read about these in the Old and New Testament and see that Jesus was literally fulfilling these prophecies. Okay, He was literally fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Matthew one twenty three corresponds with Isaiah 7.14 and it speaks of Jesus' virgin birth. Now, we're, as we get into the... Um, as we get into the genealogy today, you're going to see how important that virgin birth was. Not only was it a miraculous thing that was fulfilled from an Old Testament prophet, but if you remember in our study in Jeremiah, um, chapter 22 and, and verse 30 talked about the blood curse that was on Jehoiakim. Now, if there's a blood curse on Jehoiakim and no one from his line can sit on the throne, that's a problem. That's a serious problem. I imagine when Satan heard that, he was rejoicing. We got him now. You know, where's the Messiah going to come from? There's a curse on the bloodline. Well, the Lord played the trump card, the virgin birth. You know, so when you hear people saying, well, it wasn't really a virgin birth, it was just the, that word virgin just means young girl. Be careful. That wouldn't be much of a sign, would it? Isaiah said that the virgin birth was a sign. Well, if a young girl gives birth, what kind of a sign is that? Young, young girls give birth every day. But those verses, New Testament and Old Testament, speak of the virgin birth. Matthew 2, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6, and Micah 5, 2 correlate, speaking of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Now, that's interesting because Bethlehem was just a little nothing place. Um, it still is. I mean, you drive, you can blink and drive by it. If they didn't have billboards up there, you wouldn't even know it was there. Um, but isn't it interesting that Jesus, who claimed to be the bread of life, who came down from heaven, was born in Bethlehem, which means, Beth means house, and Lachem means of bread. Isn't it interesting that the bread of life was born in the house of bread? Matthew 2.15 corresponds with Hosea 11.1, and it talks about Jesus departing Egypt. We'll get to that. Um, Joseph has a dream and says, don't go back that way. Herod's waiting for you. He's waiting to kill the child. And then uh, Matthew 2.16 corresponds with Jeremiah 31.15. speaks of Rachel weeping for her children. Herod killing all the babies, trying to... He's so jealous, he's so worried about this king that his astrologers and soothsayers told him about. Remember the um, Zoroastrian priests, those they call them wise men or magi, um, came through and told him that they'd been following this star and there was a, a king born. So Herod says, well, well, we'll take care of that. We'll kill all the babies and then we'll for sure get them. Matthew 3.3 3 corresponds with Isaiah 43, a voice calling in the desert. Of course, that's a reference to who? Somebody tell me. John the Baptist. There you go. John the Baptist crying out. They asked him, are you Elijah? No. 
Are you a prophet? No. Are you Messiah? No. Well, then who are you? Why are you baptizing? I'm just a voice calling out in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. So all these references concerning Jesus' birth, Matthew takes you back to the Old Testament and shows you that this is fulfilling something. This is going somewhere. History is going somewhere. Now consider the passages concerning Jesus' death. Matthew 26, 15, toward the end of his gospel. This corresponds with Zechariah eleven twelve, and it's Jesus' betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah prophesied that. Betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. Well, that's, that's pinpointing it. You know, if I, if I sat here and, and I said, uh, you know, tomorrow, I made this prophecy and I said, tomorrow um, there's going to be an earthquake somewhere. You know, well, that wouldn't be much of a prophecy because you could just about open up a paper and find an earthquake somewhere. Um, but if I said at, uh, at 11.59 there's going to be an earthquake in, uh, uh, along the San Andreas Fault. Now that would be pretty accurate. And tomorrow at 11.59 you could find out if I was a prophet or not. Um, in the Old Testament if I said that and I wasn't a prophet They'd have a rock concert for me. I'd be under a pile of rocks somewhere in my family too. They're just But the accuracy, the one hundred percent accuracy of the biblical prophets, thirty pieces of silver, it'll come back to us. Twenty six thirty one, Matthew twenty six thirty one corresponds with Zechariah thirteen seven. Jesus would be struck, it says the shepherd would be struck and the flock would be scattered. We just read about that in Mark's Gospel on Sunday. Matthew 26, 38 corresponds with Psalm 42, verse 6 and verse 11, that Jesus would be sorrowful, his soul would be sorrowful and troubled or downcast. The psalmist speaks about that in Psalm 42. We saw it Sunday morning in in Mark's Gospel when Jesus is in Gethsemane. He says, "My, my my soul is troubled. My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. He said, stay here. Watch, pray. Comes back, they're sleeping. Right? Matthew mentions that. Then Matthew 27, verse 9, corresponds with Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. Again, it's speaking of the 30 pieces of silver, but this time it says, the 30 pieces of silver buys a potter's field. Now that's pinpoint accuracy. And we see when Jesus was betrayed by Judas and Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver for the act of betrayal, that 30 pieces of silver bought what? Potter's field. Not only that, but the rest of that prophecy says that it'll be thrown down in the house of the Lord. And that also was accomplished. We read that in Mark's Gospel. Matthew 27, 34 corresponds with Psalm 69, 21. Jesus was offered wine mixed with gall when he was on the cross on Calvary. And he, of course, he refused that. They were trying to sedate him. He refused that. Matthew 27, 35 corresponds with uh, Psalm 22, 18. Jesus' clothes divided among them as they cast lots for his clothing. 
Psalm 22, verse 7 corresponds with Matthew 27, 39. Jesus was insulted by those that were passing by. Remember? Physician, heal yourself. He saved others. Why can't you save yourself? Remember the mockery that he took as he hung on the cross of Calvary. And then Matthew 27, 46 corresponds with Psalm 22, 1. Jesus recites this verse from Calvary. Anybody remember what that was? First verse of Psalm 22. Yeah, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I hear somebody saying it in Aramaic over here. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting, and I get that question quite often. We've covered this here in our studies where people say, well, if Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, if he was the Word made flesh and dwelling among us, why did he say that from the cross? Why was he saying Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me? But if you look back at Psalm 22 and you read that psalm, you'll see that it was a perfect picture of the crucifixion. In, in detail, I mean in, in distinction, after distinction, in detail, crucifixion. Now this was hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. And I found out as I did a little research on that, I found out that the rabbis used that manner of teaching where they would use the Psalms, which was their hymnal, their songbook. Um, you know how you know how hard it is to memorize scripture, you guys, right? We try to memorize verses of scripture or portions of scripture. You know how hard it is to memorize. But it's easier to memorize when it's in the form of a song. How do I know that? Because I can get in the car after my wife's been driving and she's got the oldie station on and all the lyrics to all those songs are still up there. I don't want them up there. They have no purpose. <laughs> they serve absolutely no purpose. But they're there. How is that? Some of those songs are 30, 40 years old. But it's the repetition and it's the singing of the song. Now think of this. The rabbis used to use this as a method of teaching. They would use the songs or the psalms to teach. Now Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? those that were standing around the foot of the cross and had studied scripture and had put it to, to memory, to, the, to hearts, if they had run that song, if they had begun to sing that hymn, they would have seen right before their eyes unfolding the crucifixion of their very Messiah. But it slipped by them. How does that happen? How does that happen? How do we miss that? So here in uh, Matthew twenty-seven forty-six corresponds with Psalm 22, 1. And the reason why, I, these are just some select passages, like I wrote up above there, some 50 times Matthew quotes the Old Testament and he alludes to Old Testament verses some 70 other times. You can do, as you come to them, maybe that would be something you want to highlight or, or just mark in the margin of your Bible to make reference to that as we go through Matthew's Gospel. Now, Matthew's Gospel is directed to Jewish readers um, it's the good news of the gift of God. If you keep that in mind, all of this is going to make sense to you. Everything that Matthew writes down is to point to the good news of the gift of God, the gospel of Matthew, the good news of the gift of God. And he points to Jesus as Messiah. Okay? Matthew was a tax collector. Um, how many of you have a, a deep love and appreciation for your tax collector? 
right? Okay, so you get some kind of an idea. Oh, you know what, Aaron? I know that you love him in Jesus and you want to see him get saved. I know what you mean when you put your hand up. I understand that. But most people really don't like tax collectors because all they do is, I mean, we got a guy that can smell sawdust for 40 miles, you know. As soon as you start adding something, you know, up go your taxes. Now, as, as this goes on, you'll understand why they hated tax collectors because it wasn't just collecting what was due them. Of course, they would keep raising it and raising it and raising it and charge you these exorbitant prices. And so they had a reputation. A tax collector was, was I mean, you didn't want to be associated with tax collectors. Matthew was a tax collector who left his work to follow Jesus. Okay, now there's a reference there, and I want you to turn to that because this would be as good a start as any. We're going to go through this gospel verse by verse, but I want to show you this. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. just going to read a few verses there through uh, like verse 13. It says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up, and he followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You get the picture? You get the picture? These guys were hated. Tax collectors and sinners. Uh, if you're reading a King James tonight, it refers to them as publicans. Publicans. Not to be confused with republicans. Okay? It is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I find this interesting. Jesus tells the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Wow, praise the Lord. That's a whole study in itself and when we get to chapter 9 we'll cover that but notice the hatred for tax collectors note also that when Matthew was called when Jesus said Matthew follow me he dropped what he was doing and followed the Lord now in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel he's called by his other name which is what anybody know Levi Levi it's an indication that he's from the tribe of Levi, which um, was a priestly tribe. And I'm thinking, what is a priest doing collecting taxes? Just something, what's wrong with Jews? Um, and you can see Matthew's recording of the Great Commission. Talked about that before. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And although Matthew's gospel is Jewish, it has a universal outlook. Why do I say that? Well, in uh, chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, you remember what that is. That's the parable of the sower and the seed. Matthew refers to the field as the world. Actually, Jesus was doing the teaching, but he said the field is the world. Okay, And Matthew's main purpose is to prove to his Jewish readers that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, Are you with me yet? All right. Now, there's some themes we're going to cover. If you're taking notes tonight, there's five different themes we're going to cover in this gospel. There's, a, there's some room on that page if you want to just write on there. 
on the back of there. Oh, by the way, on content summary of each of the chapters, if you look at one there, chapter 1, it says Jesus' genealogy establishes his right as a descendant of David to rule. And the virgin birth is described. So that's what we're going to cover tonight. If we get through chapter, if we get through the introduction in chapter 1, we'll be lucky. Okay, we got a lot, to, a lot of ground to cover here. Um, okay, five themes we're going to try to cover in this gospel. Uh, not necessarily in this order, but we're going to be studying these five themes through the whole book. Okay, the first one is Christology. Christology. That's the study that focuses on the person of Jesus Christ. Okay. Matthew focuses on the person of Jesus Christ. That's what this good news is all about, the good news of the gift of God. Okay? The Messianic king. Remember, they're looking for a Messiah to come and rule the kingdom. So he's looking at him as the son of God, as the Messianic king. He's looking at Jesus as Emmanuel. Who can tell me what that means? Emmanuel. God with us. Excellent. He looks at Jesus as God with us, and he looks at Jesus as a servant king. Servant king. Now, those are two words you don't usually hear together. Servant king. But that's the Christology. That's the first one. First theme. Second theme we're going to study is the kingdom. The kingdom. So we're looking at Christology, the person of Jesus. The kingdom. Now, Matthew focuses on the kingdom. This is... Um, this is really incredible. How many times? Um, remember, are looking for a Messiah that's going to come and sit on David's throne and come and rule. Jesus even had this trouble with his disciples. They kept saying, "When are you, when are you going to set up the kingdom? Now? Is now you're going to set up the kingdom?" And when Jesus finally told them, "You know, it's not for you to know the day or the hour," they still didn't get it. They were still they still thought. Well, the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to be victorious, and he's going to start with Rome, and he's going to knock them off, and then set up his kingdom. And that's why James and John said, hey, can we sit one on your right and one on your left in the kingdom? He thought it was right then, right there. So Matthew's got his work cut out for him. They're looking for a, a victorious Messiah. So Matthew mentions the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, or simply the kingdom, 51 times in this gospel. He mentions the kingdom. So, you know, trying to, trying to point out to them, uh, first of all, the rule of Godship. We're going to talk about that quite a bit as we go through this gospel. It's not good enough to know about Jesus. When, we, um, when you talk to your friends and your relatives that you know don't know the Lord, and you say, do you know Jesus? Well, of course I know about Jesus. Who doesn't? Who hasn't heard that name? But it's not knowing about him, it's knowing him. It's having a relationship with him. And then, of course, there's, there's the kingdom that Jesus was talking about that was close at hand when he, when he, uh, he told um, the man the kingdom of God is close at hand. He was talking about this transformation, this moral transformation that takes place in us. So first of all, Christology. Secondly, the kingdom. Thirdly, ethics. One of the themes that Matthew covers is ethics. And when we get to chapter 5, Chapters 5 through 7 is what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Um, a friend of mine, the last two times by of a hill, 
and he recited Matthew chapters 5 through 7 for memory, and it absolutely blew me away. Um, he said it, it, it took him, uh, I think it took him three years to memorize it. He said, I taught it to my son in three months. So his son recites the Sermon on the Mount as well. Some of you may remember he did it at his oasis down at, uh, Pastor Chick recited it at his oasis down at the baptisms. Um, but it's expressed in the Sermon on the Mount, these ethics. These are God's rule in the human heart. And when we get there, you'll see what I mean by that. Um, Jesus isn't just talking about physical things, especially when he addresses certain sins. He's not just talking about committing certain physical sins. He's talking about the thoughts, your thoughts. He says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I say unto you, if you've even been angry with your brother, you've murdered him. So, it's a, it's a uh, really God's rule in the human heart, not just, not just freedom from murder and adultery, but from hate and lust as well. Okay? There's a moral transformation that takes place when we follow Christ. Have you noticed that? Now, something that I, I can't help but see, I have never been more free in my life okay, as a believer at the same time. I have never been more restrained in my life. But it's not a works deal. It's a love deal. Do you get it? As you get closer to the Lord, it's like, I just, I, I want to serve Him because I love Him. You know? Not because, it, not because it's out of some works. Okay, number one, Christology. Number two, the kingdom. Number three, ethics. Number four, discipleship. We're going to cover discipleship in this gospel. Um. Just make a note of this. We don't have time to go there tonight, but Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 27. I want you to look at that for next week. It's a definition of discipleship. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 27. You look that up. Jesus gives a definition of what it means to be a disciple. I think you already got it running through your head. <laughs> You're probably already thinking about it. By obeying his word. When you obey his word... I love that, that hymn, Trust and Obey. We sing that here quite often, Trust and Obey. Boy, there's, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust him and obey him. And Jesus used that as a test of, his, of, of our love for him. Remember what he said to the disciples? If you love me, you'll keep my commands. There's a lot of people say, I love the Lord. I, well, really? Gee, you wouldn't know by looking at you, you know. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Um, again, not a works trip. It's a love trip. And then uh, fifth and finally, we're going to cover the theme of eschatology. Eschatology is just a, um, a fancy word that means the study of last things or end times things. Last things, end things. It's a study of future things. Christ's coming again. His reign. So those are the five categories, the five themes that Matthew really digs into. Christology, the kingdom, ethics, discipleship, and eschatology. That's what we're going to be covering. Now, note that Matthew, this is something to just file somewhere. Just file this in your mind, in your heart, maybe in the margin of your Bible somewhere at the beginning of this Bible study. 
Note Matthew's frequent use of the formula or the phrase, this was to fulfill that which was spoken through the prophet. Okay? He keeps looking back at what the prophets were saying. He says, this was to fulfill that which was spoken through the prophets. He says that over and over and over in this gospel. Why is he doing that? Well, remember, this is the good news of the gift of God. And he needs for people to understand that Jesus is the which was spoken through the prophet. And then continue, whatever it is. Every time that comes up, you know, just note what Matthew's doing. Matthew's point is that every event in Jesus' life happened in accord with God's specific will. This is laid out. He's doing it exactly like the Father said. This is the way it's going. This is the way it's going. Remember in Mark's Gospel on Sunday, Sunday morning, we're coming to the end of Mark's Gospel now. Jesus is in Gethsemane, and he says, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass by me. But then what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And so notice everything that happens, happens just as the Father planned, just as the prophet said. So the King of Kings was in total control. He's in total control. Even as he hangs on the cross, he's in total control. Remember what? I lay it down and I pick it up again. That's why he said to those, or actually to the Father, concerning those that were nailing him to the cross, mocking him, crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Total control. So as I started this study, I, I wrote in my journal, and this is just a little prayer I want to share with you, that I, I said, Lord, please help me to, to give your word away freely tonight. Protect me from uttering even one word that would misrepresent you. And I want you guys to pray for me as I teach and as you study. And there's one more note I want you to make up in the corner of your notes here or somewhere. You've heard me say this a million times, but write it down. Um, Acts 17.11. Acts 17.11 words, and remember Paul said that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they received what Paul said with great joy. But then they searched the scriptures daily to see what was being taught, that it was true. And so what I want you to do is keep that Acts 17.11 handy so that you can read that. And the paraphrase is, don't believe anything that Pastor Will says. Check it out. Make sure that it's scripture. Make sure that it's true truth. It should line up from Genesis to Revelation. If something is standing out there like a sore thumb, then you need to do your homework and you need to challenge me on it, okay? That's the idea. I, don't never, I never want to represent the Lord. I said, Lord... I love to teach your word, except for the words of James ringing in my ears that say, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And so uh, Pastor Bob's here tonight and, and uh, knows exactly what I mean. As you teach God's word, we're going to be held accountable for everything that we say. When I stop and think about this, you know, every... Every Sunday morning, our study in the scriptures is 45 minutes long. Every Tuesday evening, our study is an hour, sometimes an hour and 10 minutes, and there's all these tapes of every word that I've ever said. That's scary. The Lord says we're going to be judged on that. 
So, Lord, please put a watchman at the gate of my mouth and, and keep me from misrepresenting you. You guys pray that for me, would you, as we start this study tonight? Okay, where are we? Let's, uh, let's open up then with uh, Matthew chapter 1 and, and verse 1. Um, some people skip over these first 18 verses in this genealogy because it's names. It's a name deal. Okay? Um, I don't suggest doing that because I think these are here for a purpose. And according to the Jewish mind, genealogies are very, very important. It's important to know where you came from. It's important to be able to trace it back. And so as I look at these, at these genealogies, I'm saying there's, there's a purpose for this. Um, going through the Old Testament, remember when we were in, uh, in Genesis and, and in chapter 5 we came across that genealogy and boy, it's like, like reading a New York phone book or something, you know. It's like, what, what, you know, what am I thinking? Then, I can turn there with me for a second. We got a second. Let's do this. Genesis chapter five. I want to show you something fascinating. Some of you have seen this before, but for those that haven't, there is a little genealogy, a ten-generation genealogy. It's from Adam to Noah. It's found in in uh, Genesis chapter five. Watch this. There's ten names mentioned. And if you just look at them in verse 3 there, you see Adam. Okay? And, um, and then in verse 4, you see uh, Seth. Okay? Um, and then as you come down to verse 7 there, you see Enosh. And verse 9, you see Kenan. And in verse 12, you see Mahalalel. And in verse 18, you see Jared. And then in verse 21, you see Enoch. Verse 25, you see Methuselah. Um, and verse, uh, let's see, 30, you see Lamech. And then in verse 32, you see Noah. So there's 10 names, 10 names in this genealogy. And you're going, yeah, so what? And it tells you how long they lived. You know, Adam had a son, and he named him Seth, and he lived so many years. And you just and we read that, and we just went on, we just went on. But I want to show you something. Somebody pointed this out to me: the the Hebrew meanings of these names, and I'm going to give them to you here. Adam. Adam. The Hebrew for Adam is man. It's very simple. Adam means man. And and you see in. Um, in uh, Matthew's gospel, it was really important for him to start with, with uh, to, to trace things back to Abraham and through the line of David. That was what was important. But if you look at Luke's genealogy, the important thing for him was to trace it back to Adam because Adam was the first man. So he traced the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to the first man. But just look at this. Adam means man in Hebrew. You come to Seth, and Seth's name in the Hebrew means appointed. Appointed. Seth. Whenever you hear that name, Seth, I want you to pray for my son, Seth, who's out at Bible College out in Marietta, California. Um, then we come to Enosh, verse 7 there. And Enosh's name in Hebrew means subject to death. Subject to death. Then we come to Kenan. Kenan. 
Verse 9 there, in his name means sorrowful. Kenan, Hebrew means sorrowful. Mahalalel, you'll find in verse 12, Mahalalel means from God's presence. From, from God's presence. That's pretty interesting. Come down to verse 18 there and you see Jared. Jared's name in Hebrew means one comes down. One comes down. Then you go over to verse 21. You find Enoch. Enoch's name means dedicated. Dedicated. Methuselah, verse 25, that's interesting. Methuselah's name means dying, he will send. Dying, he will send. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Dying, he will send. Lamech, if you look at verse 30 there, Lamech means to the poor and lonely. To the poor and lonely. Some of you are figuring this out. This is a pretty incredible thing. You know how many thousands of years this covered? To the poor and lonely. And then, of course, Noah's name means rest or comfort. Now, if you look at that 10-generation genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, and you look at the Hebrew meanings of their name, let me read it to you. Listen to this. Man appointed, subject to death, sorrowful, from God's presence, one comes down, dedicated, dying, he will send, to the poor and lowly, rest and comfort. That's pretty incredible. There is the gospel of Jesus Christ hidden in a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. And most of us would read a genealogy and just go, whoo, <laughs> you know, what was, what was that, you know? Who cares? How many hundred? How could those guys live hundreds of years, you know, and all that? But, and then you got the people that say, oh, yeah, you know what that was? That was just, you know, some rabbi, you know, hid that in there. And why would a rabbi who doesn't believe in Jesus, or, you know, centuries before Jesus is ever born, ever incarnate, what's up with that? You know what? I think it's pretty obvious that there's one author to this book. And if he is able to put this together, now think about it. Over thousands of years, some 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents, and there's not a contradiction from cover to cover. There's got to be one author. This author put the gospel of his son, the good news of Jesus Christ, in a genealogy in Genesis 5. So as we come to Matthew, this genealogy, I don't want to just brush over and go, well, you know, well, you know. And notice that Matthew's genealogy goes one way. Notice how it says in verse 1 there, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that first verse is pretty much the summary. That's the summary of the whole genealogy. And the most important thing for you and I to understand is that if this book had opened up with anything except a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, we could all close it up and go home. 
Because if he's not the son of David, he's not the Messiah. That's an interesting thing, how that bloodline is preserved. If it said anything but the son of David there, we could just pack up and go home tonight. And the son of Abraham. Very interesting. So Matthew is a Levite, and he begins, as any Jew would, with Abraham. Verse 2 there, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now here's something interesting, because because. In Matthew's genealogy, notice the phrase, Abraham was the father of Isaac. In the King James it says, Abraham begat Isaac. And they go in that direction. If you look at Matthew's genealogy, it goes the other way. He's going backwards. So it's, it's just interesting. And there's a reason why. We'll get into that reason why. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now you understand that um, when the Bible refers to the God of Israel, um, that's the God of Jacob. I mean, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Um, Jacob's name, I've paraphrased this to mean dirty, rotten scoundrel. Um, basically, Jacob, if you remember Esau and Jacob when they were born, and Jacob was born uh, hanging on to his brother's leg um, or heel, that, that's where we get the, the saying, you're pulling my leg. What does that mean? You're, you're joking me. You're pulling me around. Why are you, you know, you're tricking me. You're pulling my leg. And, and Jacob's name meant heel puller. It meant deceiver. I, I paraphrased it to say dirty, rotten scoundrel. But when, when God changed his name, he changed his name to lean on me or governed by God. Isn't that interesting? So uh, whenever Jacob is, is, is uh, whenever Israel is mentioned, remember that it's Jacob. It's, it's the, the nation, the nation of Israel. So here you have Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. And remember, there were 12 sons. Those 12 sons, Judah just being one of them, those were where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, as we go down here, though, I want you to notice something. First of all, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And you know that Abraham had another son. Somebody remember his name? Ishmael? Okay. But it's interesting that when God called Abraham to take his son to offer him as a sacrifice up on Mount Moriah, God said to Abraham, take thy son, thy only son. What's up with that? Well, there was one son that was born of the promise, and there was one son that was born of the flesh. And you know the story. The story goes uh, that Sarai was, was getting old, and in her old age, didn't think she could have children anymore, even though they were promised children. And so she said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take my handmaiden, Hagar, go in unto her and have a child, and you can have a nation. By And Abraham said, what a great idea. And, you know, it was all downhill from there. But God looked at this and said, I don't even recognize Ishmael as, as your child at all. Take your son, your only son. Now here in the genealogy, we see Abraham was the father of Isaac. It says nothing of Ishmael. 
And Isaac was the father of Jacob. Actually, Esau and Jacob, but it's narrowed down to Jacob. We're following the bloodline here of Jesus. Jacob, the father of Judah. We know that Jesus is what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Right. So this is the bloodline we're following here. And his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez. Now, I want you to see something here because in verse 3, this is important for you to see. Um, I don't know if we have time to go there tonight. I'm, I'm not sure. I'll give you the references, though. Judah, the father of Perez, and, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, in a Jewish genealogy, it was unheard of to mention women in a genealogy. It was just unheard of. It was, uh, you know, so-and-so begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, and the women didn't enter into it. Now, I'm looking at this, and I'm going, Tamar? Why would Matthew mention Tamar? Tamar, just make a note of this, because I don't think we have time to turn there tonight, but Tamar, in Genesis chapter 38, tricks Judah into lying with her, and she becomes pregnant with Perez, this this Perez, that Judah is the father of Perez. We just read about him, and, and most of you know the story, but I want you to refresh your, your memory and read that account from Genesis. Well, let's just turn there. Let's go there. Why not? Genesis 38. Who's timing us, eh? Take a look at verse 1 there in Genesis 38. I'm just going to read through this because I, I think this will really help you make sense of this genealogy. Um, it says, At that time Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. And there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and he lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Selah, or Sheila, it was at Kizeb that she gave birth to him. Now, interesting that the Hebrew root there for Sheila is deception. <laughs> you can kind of see how this story unfolds. Verse 6, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, that's where Tamar comes in from this genealogy, okay? But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, now remember this is his next brother in line, he says, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. That was, that was the deal. That's what they were supposed to do. If, you're, if your brother um, died and left no children in order to carry on the name, the next brother was supposed to step in there. Well, it says here in verse 9, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so Whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and went and sat down at the entrance to Anam. 
which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. Well, I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her, and he slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. And he asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Anam? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah, and he said, I didn't find her. Besides, besides, the man who lived there said, There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, ah, Let her keep what she has, or, or we'll become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, and I want you to notice something about the scriptures. Scriptures don't sweep nasty things under the rug. Okay? Just in case you think that the Bible sugarcoats stuff and, and this is just some kind of nice book of poetry or whatever, it doesn't sweep stuff on the, under the rug. It deals with them. Look at this. About three months later, after Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she's now... Uh-oh, you know what's coming, don't you? As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. And so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But... When he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Okay, so now, now you got the whole story. And then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. So I want you to turn back now to my brothers. Judah, the father of Perez, remember this illegitimate son, okay? And Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nahashan, Nahashan, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Okay, now, now here's another woman mentioned in the genealogy and another uh, woman of ill repute, uh, but rescued the two spies that came into the land, if you remember that story. And then it says, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. There's the third woman mentioned. Actually, there's three, some say, I mean, there's four, some say five women mentioned in this genealogy. If you count Bathsheba, there's five. But look at this. Uh, you count Mary, and whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Now, you're starting to understand the names, the important names here. Jesse was David's father, okay? And, and Jesse, the father of King David, okay? 
Remember the prophecy in Isaiah 11.1 1, that talked about the shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse? Okay, so Matthew's tying it all together here for these Jewish people so they can see the genealogy and they can see where Jesus can trace back. But now this is interesting. Why David? Why King David? Turn with me quickly. We're going to wrap this up here. Deuteronomy chapter 23. I've got to show you one Old Testament law. All right? One Old Testament law found in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 2. This is going to click for you, and you're going to know why we're doing all this. Look at this law. It says, no one born of a forbidden marriage, okay, that, that simply means, a, in fact, your Bible may say, or one illegitimate, illegitimately born. No one born of a forbidden marriage or illegitimately born, nor any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the 10th generation. To the 10th generation of an illegitimate child. Okay, now let me ask you a question. How many generations do you suppose were between Perez and David? <laughs> if you say 10, you're right. Is that incredible or what? Matthew's spelling it out here. He's spelling it right out according to the Jewish law. The son of David? Why David? Why not any of these other men? Well, because they're incredible. The 10th generation from Perez is David. And then you know the generation. Many of these names are going to be familiar to you because we just came through um, Isaiah. We just came through Jeremiah. We just came through Lamentation. So a lot of these names will be familiar to you. Um, David then was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So there's the men mention of Bathsheba, not by name, but you know who Uriah's wife was. So that's the fourth one mentioned. And then Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. You're starting to see some of these kings that come into play here. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Now we're getting into the kings that were um, where Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah prophesied through there. Uh, Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, also the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. That's where we talked about that curse that came in there in uh, Jeremiah 22.30. The curse on Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So a lot of those names are familiar to you. The reason why you're recognizing them is we just came through the exile, to, um, uh, first of all, to Assyria and then to Babylon. Uh, the northern and the southern kingdoms there. Verse 12, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abud. Abud, Abud the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan, husband of Mary. So there's the fifth woman mentioned, if you include Bathsheba, the fifth woman in this genealogy, the husband of Mary. So this is, this is really a genealogy, legally in the, in the bloodline, but exempt from the blood curse of Jeconiah because they bring it through Mary. 
So it's, you know, it's really interesting to see how the Lord got around that. I can imagine the party Satan was throwing when he found out, oh man, the bloodline's cursed, the Messiah can't come. Well, um, your days are numbered is the extent of my dialogue with the enemy these days. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, called the Christ. And you know that that word Christ is Messiah, Mashiach, the Christ, the anointed one. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, covered about uh, about, uh, 400 years, and then the uh, 14 from the exile to Christ, um, or actually 600 years and then 400 years. So there's about 2,000 year period covered there in the uh, three sets of 14 generations. And I think that's where we're going to draw the line. I thought maybe we could get through chapter 1 tonight, but uh, we're really cutting it kind of close. So, um, But why the genealogies? Why in the world would Matthew go through all this trouble? Well, it was important to the Jewish people. It was important. Jews, Jews dreamed about this genealogy. You realize in that 400 silent years between Testaments, every Jewish mother was praying that her son would be the Messiah. I mean, every Jewish mother. And so the, the genealogy of the Messiah, all their claims hung on this genealogy. So it was important. And here, um, Matthew points out the Messianic line. Matthew sums up the genealogy in verse 1. Um, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we'll take up here... Uh, next week with uh, the birth of Jesus. And uh, until then, uh, let's have a word of prayer and, and ask the Lord to just continue to help us as we search his word and what, what does it all mean to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for preserving this, your word for us tonight. And, and I know that uh, a lot of very dedicated men and women and children gave their lives trying to preserve this for us. And We don't take that lightly, Lord. We thank you uh, that we can study your word tonight. And I pray for uh, the area pastors and teachers, Lord, and ask that uh, you'd help us to take us away. So as we look at this, this good news of the gift of God, of, of your own son, Jesus, we ask, Father, that you'd help us to make sense of it and help us to apply it to our lives. Lord, I thank you so much for Jesus. And I thank you that he poured his blood out and he covered each one of us by his own blood and he took our sinful lives and nailed them to the cross so that he could take his sinless life and put it on our account. God, that is so incredible that you would do that. That, that one that, that knew no sin would become sin for us, that in Him we could become your righteousness. Father, that is awesome. Thank you for that great exchange. And Lord, help us now. As we leave this place, Lord, to just rise this, Lord, just the thought of your coming. And, um, and we just give you our lives, Lord, to use. Help us to spread the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's your power unto salvation. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.